0: And welcome to another episode of our DS30 podcast. I am Ana
1: And I'm Michael Cullen. And today we are joined by Zach King, who is a senior data scientist at GoDaddy, and who is going to talk to us about his work there and about differences between artificial neural networks and gradient-boosted trees. So we'll go ahead and get right into it.
0: Hello, Zach. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. So, uh, the way we usually start our podcasts is to have our guests introduce themselves. So, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what's your role and how you got into data science?
2: Uh, I would. Thank you. Um, my name is Zach King. I am a uh, senior data scientist at GoDaddy. Yes, GoDaddy, the uh, the uh, company that's famous for domain registration and its racy ads <laughs> from back in the, uh, I believe it was the late 90s. Um, that GoDaddy. And I'll have to say that GoDaddy is a lot different company than it used to be. It's a lot more, I would say, progressive. And uh, I think uh, some of the reputation that it, that it gained um, from its beginnings um, have stuck with it, uh, I think, a little bit unfairly. Um, it's definitely a lot different of a company. Uh, we're a lot more focused on developing better products versus you know the, uh, the marketing stunts and so forth that we used to do. Um, and uh, I work with some really, really great people. Um, we have an amazing CEO. Um, and uh, it's just a really great time, I think, to, to be working at GoDaddy.
0: Awesome. Um, yeah. And you were a senior data scientist, correct? Correct. And can you tell us a little bit about how you got into data science in the first place?
2: Sure, I sort of got into it later in my career. I um, Actually, I used to be a, a, an engineering technician. Um, And through my work, uh, I did a lot of uh, analysis with uh, spreadsheets. I think that's sort of the the gateway drug for most people that get into uh, analytics or data science is uh, Excel, right, and playing around with uh, the cool visualization functions and uh, pivot tables and so forth in Excel. And so I sort of fell in love with the craft um, through uh, that work. And then I realized that uh, this burgeoning uh, uh, field of data science uh, was becoming a thing and there was a huge demand um, for people with that skill set. And because I really enjoyed the work, um, I didn't find it tedious. I think maybe that's a big barrier uh, to getting into data science is there's a lot of tedium involved. Once you put aside all of the, you know, the the cool title and um, uh, uh, it being the quote unquote sexiest uh, job of the 21st century and and what have you. Um, there's a lot of tedium and a lot of tedious work involved. Mm-hmm. So. I was always able to stomach that and uh, had a knack for it and enjoyed it. So it really just blossomed from there. Um, I eventually, uh, working at uh, Intel, I switched careers into being a a project manager, um, working in uh, this division of Intel that did a lot of university engagement. So in the combination of my uh, sort of prior experience with data, my exposure to all of these cool things that were going on in academia. uh, and then uh, pursued a master's degree in uh, predictive analytics from Northwestern um, and then was able to get into a data science job at Intel um, towards the end of my career at Intel. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of how I got into data science.
1: All right, well, thanks so much, Zach. So, um, you know, one, one thing that you could maybe speak to a little bit as well as you know, uh, you know, in your work at GoDaddy, you know, what are some of the sorts of projects, um, you know, that you and your team work on? Um, and, sure. okay, actually, and, and, uh, Zach, for what it's worth, uh, you'll find that I make pretty liberal use of the, let me try that again, function <laughs> in here. Because <Okay>. um, <laughs> uh, I get a little scatterbrained on the mic sometimes. Um, but I actually, I'm going to follow up about some of, like, your team's general kind of areas of work um, before we get into the topic for today. All right, Zach, thanks. So, you know, one more thing that I'd like to ask a little bit about, you know, with regards to your current role is, you know, what kinds of projects do you and your team, you know, generally work on? Uh, What kind of data do you work with? What are the sorts of objectives you guys, you know, have in your work?
2: So GoDaddy is in a unique position data-wise because there's so much of it. Uh, It's been around... I mean, it's it's rather old for a tech company, if you would. Um, I think mid uh, '90s is when GoDaddy was officially formed. So we have data going all the way back um, to that period. Um, obviously, it, it changes; things change over time, and it becomes irrelevant over time. But we have just a massive repository of information about users um, who've you know purchased domains, uh, resold domains, uh, used products like our website builder product for creating websites. So that opens the door for a lot of very interesting um, types of work and projects. Um, One project uh, that's really cool to speak about uh, that another group at GoDaddy did uh, was developed a model to predict whether a website was considered ugly or not. And we'll get into all the details, but basically um, the idea was if you could understand that a website is is not very attractive, not very aesthetically pleasing, let's say, um, you could then maybe reach out to that website owner or offer them a, a free trial for one of our website builder products, let's say. Um, so it's it a way basically to identify potential leads based on what their site looked like, um, and using information about uh, the domain owners, um, you could also incorporate that into the model along with you know what the actual uh, pixels uh, and how they were you know laid out on the page. So. lots of data, lots of interesting things that you can do with it. Um, My group, uh, I work in the marketing analytics group at GoDaddy. So um, most of my work revolves around understanding uh, customers from a financial perspective. Um, The project that uh, I've been working on for about the last year and a half or so at GoDaddy is uh, predicting customer lifetime value. Um, And again, having all of that data about our customers going back years and years allows us to do some pretty interesting things like predicting, um, customer value, let's say 25 months, uh, into the future, where if you don't have at least, you know, 25 plus maybe 12 more months, 30, you know, 36 months worth of data, that's something that you, that you can't do. Mm -hmm. So even though GoDaddy is an older company, um, it has acquired a lot of data over the years, which, um, are kind of Starting to to yield a competitive advantage, um, particularly cool. in the area of marketing.
1: Awesome, yeah, cool. Um, really, really cool to hear about the uh, how attractive is this website model. Definitely an angle I never would have thought of. Um, and with regards to your work um, and kind of why we're here today, um, you know, I know that we had spoken a bit about you wanted to come on and talk about the differences between some different sort of machine learning models or some modeling paradigms um, to talk about, you know. Neural networks, um, and you, know, you also want to talk about the, this gradient boosted trees, gradient tree boosting kind of modeling, how they're different, uh, and you know how you've used them and their work. Um, and so, before we get into that, could you speak a little bit about kind of the motivation today for you know comparing these two types of modeling, uh, or you know if there was a particular way that this came up in in your own experience? Sure,
2: um, would be glad to. Um... So there's a couple of ways that you can approach predicting uh, customer value over time. Uh, One is more of a, I guess you could call it a closed form solution. It's it's called a shifted uh, beta geometric model. Um, And there's there's, there's only about a handful of uh, academics who have done significant work in the area of uh, customer value. So it's it's a very difficult problem to solve um, because customers are inherently unpredictable. Um, and a lot of it depends on your business model. Um, like GoDaddy's business model is primary, primarily subscription-based, which actually um, has a lot of really nice, uh, interesting benefits when it comes to being able to predict um, uh, long-term value. Um, but we wanted to do something a little different. We wanted to use some sort of machine learning approach as, a, as opposed to the, uh, the, geometric, <laughs> the geometric approach. So we settled on, we were either going to, we were going to either use an artificial neural network or um, decision trees. And I think a lot of people um, these days uh, would just assume that, you know, any kind of machine learning you're going to do, you should just use an artificial neural network, right? Um, I don't fully agree with that. Um, I think part of the reason why uh, uh, neural networks are so popular is, I mean, they're incredibly powerful. You know, let's get that uh, out of the way up front. But there's also a lot of hype around them, right? Like anytime you hear about artificial intelligence, you know, you you make it synonymous with deep learning artificial neural networks. It just has this like really high sex appeal. Um, I think that uh, is catchy and, and people just gravitate towards it um, right off the bat. And, you know, these days there's a lot of really nice high-level tools like uh, Keras and um, uh, PyTorch, I believe is another one, that allow you to build out networks, you know, very easily. Um, so a lot of the... Uh, A lot of the um, issues with doing that that have been there traditionally have been abstracted away. uh, So that's nice. But I submit that um, it's not always the best approach. And I think a lot of people would um, not agree with that, primarily based on this idea of the uh, universal approximation theorem, which basically says that a correctly tuned uh, artificial neural network should be able to approximate any continuous function. Something to that effect, I may not have gotten the verbiage 100% correct, but that's the gist of it. Basically what that says is any kind of, um, any kind of function you should be able to model. It could be linear, it could be non-linear, um, it, it could be extremely squiggly if you would, a squiggly looking function that uh, follows a very poorly behaved mathematical pattern. Um, so a lot of people will just say right off the bat, well, artificial neural network, thats that's the only thing you should ever use. But there's a few key points, I think, even if you look at that theorem. One is continuous. right? Not all functions um, are continuous. There's lots of examples of discontinuous functions. Um, Also, I think the other key point is approximation. right? So you never get the actual true mathematical uh, function that's underlaying something that you're modeling. You can, at best, approximate it. And that's true for any modeling approach. But I submit that uh, a different approach may approximate that function better than, let's say, an artificial neural network. Um, And I think a a good case in point is this recent uh, LTV project that I did, where I looked at using, I I was given free reign to choose the modeling approach that I wanted. So I chose XGBoost and artificial neural networks, and I compared the results side by side. And what I found out was XGBoost actually performed better in terms of our overall error rate. Furthermore, it was a more flexible model. And what I mean by that is, if you look at, let's say, the least valuable sets of customers, maybe customers who are actually costing us money um, because the the margin value that we bring in from them is negative versus our most profitable customers, that range is, is huge, right? I mean, you could have a customer who's worth negative $50, the next customer is going to be worth ten thousand dollars over the course of you know a couple years. So how do you model you know something that's that the range of of the possible values is that large? Well, uh, first of all, you're probably not going to be able to do it using uh, uh, linear regression, right? Um, particularly when you have a handful of customers who are highly valuable and the majority of them are not so valuable, and then some are extremely uh, on the negative side. Uh, they're very uh, they're very sensitive to outliers, right? So right off the bat, you have this issue with a very skewed distribution of customers. Um, and what we found was XGBoost could model that distribution uh, a lot better than an artificial neural network could. Um, we noticed that the XGBoost predictions were actually able to be negative, whereas the artificial neural network predictions would never go below zero. Um, it was very difficult to get them to be um, more to get them to be more flexible. Mm -hmm. Um, because it was certainly it's certainly possible that we have customers who are are worth negative dollars Mm -hmm. Um, but the the artificial neural network just the way um, that they behave um, my theory is due to their the nature of their activation functions doesn't allow them to always be as flexible as a decision tree uh, based approach can be which is completely invariant to scale and outliers
0: and Um, that's very interesting. Maybe for any of our listeners who are not as familiar, uh, with XGBoost, can you tell us a little bit more about, uh, this, um, machine learning algorithm?
2: Sure. So at its heart, it's basically, uh, a bunch of decision trees. It's an algorithm that constructs a whole bunch of, uh, what are called weak learners. Um, they're little decision trees that are carved out from different, uh, sub samples of. Your underlying data, and the sub the, the the data are sampled at the row level, and then also at the column level. So you have you you may have let's say a thousand different little decision trees that make up uh, this one this one particular model. Um, that idea is called ensembling, right? Where you take a bunch of models and put them all together, and you come up with you know a, a, an average result um, in the case of uh, let's say regression. So at its core. As I mentioned, it's primarily an ensemble of decision trees. And there is uh, gradient updating, uh, which is employed, which tries to find absolute minima with respects to an objective function that it's trying to to minimize. Uh, And in the case for regression, it's typically root mean squared error, right? So that gradient updating procedure is one of the things that makes um, XGBoost and gradient-boosted models special um, on top of the fact that it's an ensemble of uh, many, many different decision trees, which anyone by themselves uh, tends to not give a very good result. But when you average all of their results together and you're able to do that very quickly, given the nature of uh, the, the gradient descent algorithm, you can create very complex models, which can, uh, which model uh, very uh, pathological functions, let's say, in a very quick amount of time and do it very accurately. Um, so that's essentially what XGBoost is. And by the way, the, the whole concept is, is uh, comes from the idea of crowdsourcing, right? Where if you have 100 people looking at a, trying to guess the weight of a cow, if you take the mean of all their guesses, it tends to be much better than any one particular guess. So that's sort of the underlying philosophy that, uh, that uh, these types of uh, ensemble decision trees uh, operate uh, under.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, since it is combining all of these uh, these weak learners, these, you know, things that are making, to sort of like partial, you know, and less informed guesses than the, you know, entire ensemble put together, um, we can kind of start to see why some of them would get really good at, You know, predicting or understanding those really high-value customers and those some of those negative-value customers as well. Um, And so, you know, with with that in mind, I I think it kind of starts to give us some intuition for why a model like this um, might make more sense than a neural network.
2: Absolutely, and and you hit the nail on the head. It's it's really about differentiation, where you want to identify who your very high customer uh, value customers are um, and who your you know uh, lower value customers are. And there's all kinds of reasons why you would want to do that. Um, uh, suffice to say that understanding who's valuable and who's not uh, is, is a highly desirable thing in the world of marketing. Uh, and XGBoost is, is so flexible that um, it allows you to identify those customers a lot more clearly than, let's say, something um, that tends to lean towards approximating continuous functions like a neural network.
0: Mm -hmm. And so you were saying that in this particular project, uh, XGBoost turned out to perform better in the end. Um, Do you have any idea of how much you would say that that's specific to your project or your particular uh, data or anything like that?
2: So what, what uh, like a quantification of how well it performed better? Is In what the you're sense asking that, if me? They,
0: I, I guess I'm getting at um, talking about, there's certain cases where uh, it's not the case that always right XGBoost will outperform a neural network, right? There's certain cases where I guess neural for certain things problems sure. neural networks are better. Uh, so I, I I meant, do you have any sort of idea about what is it about the specificity of this particular project that made XGBoost outperform a neural network? Maybe not. No, uh, no,
2: that's a great that's a great question, and. I think I'll answer it by saying, over a, a known over a domain of numbers, uh, a, a, over a a, um, a limited domain of input variables. By limited, I mean like they're bounded; the values are bounded. Like, let's say the lowest value is minus a thousand. The the highest value can be a thousand, and uh, uh, they won't go outside of those values. I, I, I submit that you will always get better performance out of an XGBoost model than you will a neural network, and a lot of people may challenge that. And but and, and that's a general statement, right? It may not always be the case, but the and the reason is, um, if I had to boil it down to a single point, is extrapolation. So, the way that a decision tree works. It doesn't. It, it, it's completely unaware of the universe outside of the boundaries of its uh, and the size of its inputs. Whereas a neural network, since it's an actual, you know, uh, since there are actual weights involved uh, that you multiply by uh, another variable, it doesn't care if you go outside. So say the input all of a sudden instead of being, you know, maximum thousand, the maximum can be ten, can be ten million. A neural network will still give you a result that extrapolates out beyond the range of its initial inputs, whereas an XGBoost model, uh, one of the big limitations, and this is a good uh, cautionary note, is that um, it can't extrapolate beyond the bounds of its input data. So if you give it a value of 10 million, it'll still give you a prediction, but the chances are, chances are, it's going to be non, it's going to be nonsensical, and um, it's also not the case that it will just peg uh, the prediction to um, the highest value that it saw in the training set. That It becomes very unstable when you start giving it uh, input values that are outside of the original range under which it was trained. So that's something to be very cautious of. But um, having said that, I I stand by my statement that given uh, a a bounded uh, range of inputs, you're gonna probably get better performance out of an XGBoost model than you will a neural network Again, based on the fact that a neural network has to be able to extrapolate beyond its boundaries, whereas an XGBoost model is not constrained um, uh, by that. And I think that the extrapolation itself isn't the cause. I think it's sort of a symptom of the underlying mechanics of how a neural network works, um, based on again uh, its activation functions and how they're bound by you know a certain set of behavior given. Uh, that they're that they're mathematical functions at the at their core, whereas an XGBoost model doesn't hardly use any math uh, when it's you know when it's uh, generating predictions. It's it's all just going down a set of a you know of a bunch of decision trees that have been given uh, uh, that have you know that basically tell the the model basically says based on the inputs um, after going through a whole bunch following a whole bunch of decision trees to their end. It says, this is the most likely value for this prediction. But there aren't really any weights um, that it's multiplying another number by to arrive at that prediction. So you could see why when you start giving it values outside of the original range, it's going to misbehave because that's just not the nature of how it works to be able to multiply two numbers together to get an extrapolative answer.
1: Sure, definitely. And I I think that kind of just points to a very like apples and oranges approach in in terms of how they construct their answers. And I I think that, you know, tells us a lot about, like you said, cases in which one or the other might be more useful. Um, I guess, you know, looking forward from this, then, you know, um, not just like, where should we use each of them, but, you know, I I guess, you know, what can we learn from each of these types of models, you know, um, or what, have maybe you seen in your experience from using these kinds of models? Yeah, again, the, the
2: key is, to me, uh, when deciding which I'm going to use, it's, it, it's all about the nature of the inputs. Um, whenever, whenever you're, let's say, doing an image classification, uh, building an image classification model, um, the value of the inputs are bounded. right? Like You're basically saying, uh, for a, is a certain pixel on or off? Um, and I'm sim- I'm probably oversimplifying that I haven't really done any image classification, but basically the point I'm getting at is the nature of your inputs are are pretty are pretty, uh, uh, are pretty st- well known. Uh, whereas when you have inputs that are continuous, um, as in the case with uh, money, where there's no limit on how much money somebody can spend for, let's say their first order when they're a new customer, or how much their value is worth, you're you're likely to run into issues using an approach like XGBoost because of that extrapolation issue. It just can't extrapolate it and interpolates really, really well. But when you're looking at uh, unbounded inputs, uh, that's sort of a big concern. So you have to do things like scale the data, um, but then you run into problems again, based on the fact that the data are unbounded, that if you have new observations that are outside of the original, outside the original scale of the data, um, it's not going to be, your model's not going to be, representative or or well generalizable on future observations so the key really is the the quality the quantity and how much confidence you have that the input data that you have in the distribution and what you know about it um, is typical uh, and is unlikely to change so that's that's a big um that's a big factor and yes i sort of uh violated that rule when i chose xgboost um but again we have a lot of data the has a lot of data about our customers that goes back for quite some time so that does allow us to build you know pretty stable models that are interpolative by nature um but don't tend to misbehave, misbehave um when we introduce you know new observations the thing is though that you know they have to be trained um over time because they'll they'll drift uh, given that fact um so it really comes down to again the nature of the problem the nature of your input data And I don't know much about XGBoost, like if you were to use it for image classification, if it will tend to outperform a neural network. Um, Based on my theory, it sounds like it would.
0: So um, I was wondering if there's sort of anything we can learn from your experience on this particular project and sort of in comparing these two approaches. Uh, could we generalize this comparison in any way? Sort of, is there any takeaway there for maybe don't always go for what everybody does or for the hottest thing on the market, right? Or go for the most popular <laughs> solution? Uh, are there any sort of general tech takeaways that you would say translate from your experience uh, on this project to maybe other things as well?
2: Yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of experimentation. Um, if you're in a position as a data scientist to be able to try different approaches and compare them, like you, you know, you have the time to be able to do that. And if you don't have the time to be able to do that, I, I would urge you to talk to your manager because I, I've learned the most, and this is, you know, sort of a, a played out saying, but I've learned the most by doing things wrong. <laughs> um, uh, I hate to admit it, but the I've learned a lot from all of the mistakes that I've made. Um, and so the biggest advice I can give or the, the biggest uh, I guess uh, what I can say about my approach is I'm not afraid to try something different. And if it doesn't work, that's fine. There's probably 80% of that you can reuse because you've learned something, right? You either learn what you could do next time or what not to do next time. So carve out the time for yourself to try the different approaches. And if they don't agree, you know, ask yourself why. And Almost all the time, it, the answer, of course, all the time, the answer is in the data. Uh, if you, if the data, if there's something going on with the data that you didn't know about, um, it could, you know, what you, what you don't know can really hurt you in the world, in the world of predictive modeling. I don't think it's, it's very um, good practice. It's not a very good practice just to take your data and feed it in. to we'll model without first sitting down. Uh, and then doing some uh, some exploratory data analysis. And I think the, the mantra in the world of uh, artificial intelligence these days with artificial neural networks is, oh, you know, the machine will figure it out. Uh, we'll just feed in whatever. If we give it enough of it, it'll sort through all the garbage and it'll come out with this really great model uh, and these really great predictions on the other end. Um, I don't agree with that at all. Uh, I think the other piece of advice other than feel free, you know, be sure you're exploring all, all different types of solutions, not just, you know, what you were told was the, the best way to do it. You know, explore on your own uh, what other solutions exist and how they, you know, how they compare and then why are they different. But then also know your data. Do the, do the exploratory exploratory data analysis. You know, build the histogram of what your inputs, the distribution of your inputs look like. What is what is your output skewed? Are there a lot of zero values in your output? You know, is it, uh, is it uh, a skewed? Is, does your output have a skewed distribution with a whole bunch of zero values in it? there's a different way that you need to approach that problem, Um, a different, uh, you know, maybe uh, objective function, loss function that you would want to consider than just using, you know, ReLU or or Sigmoid or whatever, you know, the the most commonly used activation function is. So just feel free to make mistakes, play around, break things, and get to know your data. Um, Those are the two Biggest piece of advice uh, I have, and the two things that I always, um, I'm always doing uh, when I'm uh, considering a, a build, you know, when I go to a, a approach building a new model.
1: You know, I totally agree with that, Zach. And um, you know, I mean, of course, experimentation has to be key, right? Isn't that what the word scientist is referring to? <laughs> uh, yes. Um, and you know, and from learning from your mistakes, I feel like I make mistakes all the time. Um, but, you know, I tell you what, like, it, like you said, you know, you, you need to have, like, the right kind of environment where you can do that. So, you know, what would, would you say that, you know, how do you, how do you see that sort of philosophy play out, you know, um, in the team that you work with? Or, you know, how does the sort of, you know, culture of, like, data science at GoDaddy, you know, feel with regards to that experimentation and that exploration?
2: Well, you, you mentioned uh, science is in the title and i think that's i think that's important and i it seems like a big trend and i I don't know this for sure i've just heard um rumblings in the you know in the in the larger uh, data community if you would that the term data science is sort of getting misapplied um because it's such a sought after title and yeah if you're not if you're not experimenting if you're not trying out things um and not being afraid that they're going to fail or, or being afraid that they're going to fail. Like you're not really doing data science, I don't think. I, I think part of it should be you're learning you're learning as you go and you're, you're constantly probing, you're constantly asking questions, and you're constantly trying to find a new better way to do something. I mean that that's pretty much science at its core, right? Is is trying to understand how things work so that then you can do something else, take that information and and, and do something that's better than what you're currently doing, so I I just hope anybody who's listening, who's a who's a um, who may be a future manager uh, of an analytics team or who, who's going to be a manager of data scientists, um, you know, let your let your let your people fail a little bit, you know. I think there's a, and uh, you know, it, it, being a manager is hard work, uh, and so I don't want to like trivialize. All of the things that a manager has to do and and how they have to be accountable for so many different things and so many different people so it may be like uh, uh kind of uh maybe not well received for me to say let your let your folks fail but i think it's, it's extremely important because what what they learn from failing is gonna you know pay dividends down the road and furthermore they're going to be very appreciative that they were given the space you know, to, to, to fail um, and hopefully succeed
0: (laughs) spectacularly
2: (laughs) at at some point.
0: (laughs) Yes. I think that's definitely great advice and uh, a good point to conclude on. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Zach, I want to thank you for being with us for sharing all of your experience and great advice. Um, So thank you again.